If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What can the fall of Rome teach us about the decline of the West today? That's the question at the centre of John Rapley and Peter Heather's new book, Why Empires Fall, where Peter, a historian of the late Roman Empire, and John, a political economist, investigate comparisons and differences between the two case studies. I spoke to them to find out more, and the first voice you'll hear after mine is Peter's. So, John and Peter, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your new book, Why Empires Fall. To start us off and give listeners a bit of grounding in what we're going to be discussing today, it'd be really useful if one of you could outline the central argument of your book for us. I think this, the central argument is quite straightforward, and that is that long-lived imperial systems have a kind of life cycle to them, that the way that they operate transforms both themselves and the world around them in ways, particularly the distribution of economic strength and therefore strategic power, which is closely related to economic strength, obviously, it transforms those patterns in such a way that actually then makes it more difficult over the long term for that imperial system to keep on working, or certainly to work in the way that it used to work. In the Roman case, we make the argument that it actually led to the dismantling Uh, the unravelling of the Roman imperial system. Uh, In the West, we're not at the end of that process, but you can certainly see the sort of, I don't know, more than the beginnings, a bit more than the middle, not quite the end of that process working itself out, such that the imperial system associated with the West in the modern world can't continue to function in the way it used to do because the distribution of economic strengths has been changed by the way that system works. I think uh, if I can add to that, Ellie, what I would say is that the unique angle that Peter and I bring is that we're looking at entirely different time periods in our original work, but both of us are looking from the perspective of the periphery, and we're noticing a lot going on that our colleagues in our respective disciplines hadn't picked up. And I guess if you, you could sum it up saying in the early stages of an empire, history is made at the core, but in the latter stages, it's made increasingly at the periphery. And we came across this, as I say, in entirely different time periods. I mean, Peter's field is one that uh, until relatively recently, I think he'd probably say it was dominated by historians. And there still are some historians who have very much a focus on what's happening at the heart of empire to explain Uh, the decline of the empire. And he's saying, no, it's actually what's happening in the periphery that explains the decline of empire. In my case, um, you know, looking at, 
if you take the last 20 years and the relative uh, sluggishness of Western economies, there's a huge literature on, well, what are the forces behind this? Is it declining productivity? Is it the wrong kind of immigration policy? What is it? But in fact, I had noticed this because I was living and working in the global periphery, as I still am. Uh, you know, I was seeing changes going on in, in capital flows, global capital flows, investment, trade, and all these things. And increasingly, these are things that lie beyond the control of governments in Western countries. They're being driven by what's happening in this rising periphery. So as you say, you have come from two kind of very different focus points here. Peter, you're a historian. John, you're primarily a political economist. So how did you come together for this project? <laughs> completely by accident, uh, in the sense that John got to know my next door neighbour about 25 years ago. I got a general idea of what John was working on. At that point, I was thinking very hard about the way in which non-imperial Europe had been transformed by its interrelation with imperial Europe in, across the first millennium. And we began a conversation. And the coincidences, which are not mere coincidences, they are recurring patterns in our argument, uh, between what John was working on and what I was working on became very clear, very quickly, in fact. So I think some people will be listening to this and they will be thinking the Roman Empire and the modern West are very, very different places. The world has been transformed beyond recognition since the time of the Roman Empire. So when so much has changed, what makes big, expansive kind of comparisons like this viable or meaningful? I use the analogy, Ellie. I once had a conversation with a colleague of mine in the field of development economics, and he was very critical of an influential economic paper which had just come out. And he said, this is a one-size-fits-all approach, and it's never going to explain what's happening in my country. My country is unique. And my answer to him is, there was, he was there with another colleague. I said, well, if I punch you in the face, that experience will be unique. It will never be repeated again. But I rather doubt that your neighbor here will say, well, you better punch me in the face so that I can come to the conclusion as to what's going to happen. The simple fact that we have very different cases in itself doesn't say anything because what Peter and I found, and the thing is, it is true that the comparisons of the Roman Empire, the fall of the Roman Empire, and the decline of the West today always go for the surface. They always go for the obvious things, you know, very popular trope we hear all the time, the barbarian invasions. Boris Johnson, when he was prime minister, said uncontrolled immigration is what brought down the Roman Empire. And what Peter and I were looking at, we're looking at the deep currents and we're seeing very deep in the sort of the bowels of these systems, there are changes that take place. Those resemble, fundamental forces resemble them over time. The manifestations are entirely different. So, for example, in the case of the Roman Empire, as uh, Peter has famously argued, you know, it really is the rise of state capacity militarily and the ability to overthrow and to compete with the imperial armies and eventually to overwhelm them. In the modern period, there's nothing similar. Migration runs through the history of all empires. But we're looking at the wrong migration. You know, this idea that we have uncontrolled immigration is almost nonsensical when you compare it to what was happening because the late Roman Empire wasn't brought down by uncontrolled migration. It was migrations that were controlled by these rising states. And the rising states in today's periphery aren't interested in sending all their immigrants into Britain. They want to actually keep them and build their economies. And what is 
very similar, though, is that in the modern period, you get the same buildup of state power, but it isn't expressing itself militarily. It is expressing itself diplomatically in trade negotiations, for example. This is where the periphery has acquired more and more power because its economies have become more important. Western countries and their trade negotiations want access to those markets and have to give more in the trade negotiations. They're not able to dictate the terms anymore, and they certainly can't use gunboat diplomacy as they were able to use 150 years ago. So it's the fundamental drivers that resonate through time. The manifestations differ entirely. And what we've done, I think what our colleagues who still make the mistake of going straight to the surface and looking at the waves on the top, if you will, rather than the deep currents, they're missing what is actually going on. In a sense, the differences are as revealing as the similarities. And that's what we tried to pull out in the book. We're not saying that these are exactly the same. Um, What's fundamentally different about the Roman situation is that there's one source for producing wealth, and that is control of agricultural land. There are small commercial sectors, there are small trade sectors, but most of those are trading agricultural products, in fact. No one's selling chariots on an industrial scale in the Roman period. (laughs) That is not happening. It's not like that at all. The chariot industry was not something that people were negotiating negotiating a lot over. It is about agricultural land and its control. And that is why the sort of immigration thing in in the Roman Empire generated contests, contests for control of prime real estate, because that's the only way that you can generate serious wealth in a pre-modern economy. So that is why the sort of rise of the periphery in the Roman period tended to then generate contests over land control at the centre. But now, of course, the commercial wealth-generating assets come in a huge range of forms, and most of those don't require you to control real estate in Britain or France or even America if you're a peripheral state in order to prosper. It is about you know location of factories and production and other forms of commercial asset or intellectual capital or whatever. None of that is fixed to a physical space. So all of that is completely different, and that's why the end of the modern Western Empire will not be about barbarians invading to take over Sheffield or Birmingham. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. What is the same is that the operation of the Roman Empire in the past and the modern Western empires and imperial systems of the last 200 years, the way in which they enriched themselves via their relationships with the outside world, but then inadvertently transformed the outside world so that in the end they create these financial and hence political entities in in the outside world that will in the end undercut their world or regional levels of dominance. So the book is called Why Empires Fall?, But in order to have that fall, first, we do have to have a rise, of course. And that is something that you look at in the book. What do you think we should see as the main factors in growth of these two empires? Well, it's colonial exploitation, uh, you know, fundamentally. I mean, there's a a huge resource transfer. There's a great debate among economic historians, and there is some disagreement. But it's very hard to get away from the fact that, you know, some some economic historians say it's not more than 10 or 15 percent of capital formation in Britain in the 19th century was due to its surplus on trade with the colonies. But this is, you know, if you compound that kind of percent over a century, that's a huge amount of growth. Secondly, the 
markets, the sheer size of the markets, the point has been made that precisely because why did Italy, which had been, in a sense, the epicenter of global capitalism, the birthplace of this whole regime that we talk about in the Middle Ages, why did Italy not grow into the industrial powerhouse that Britain would become? Well, it's because it didn't have, until extremely late in the day, much too late in the day, it didn't have a colonial empire. By the time it had it, the empires were already at the point where it wasn't really advantageous to hold colonies anymore. That period of time leads to, you know, this opening up of huge markets. And you get, in the case of, for example, India, you get relative decline. The economy keeps growing. And there is transformation taking place, but it's slower than in Britain. In the case of China, it's absolute decline. You actually get a decline in income. At the start of the 19th century, the majority of global manufacturing took place in those two countries, in India and China. At the end of the 19th century, they were almost inconsequential in global manufacturing. It's simply inseparable from the rise of empire that all this is happening. But as we, we show in the book, quietly all the time, largely through the history of families who in the colonies are beginning to take advantage of the opportunities that empire presents, you know, start building these new businesses. So you get a family like the Tata family in India, and they start out as basically, you know, sort of taking advantage of the colonial markets, including markets in East Africa, which are very significant, and in East Asia. And they sort of get involved in that trade, gradually build a business empire to the point that, of course, in the modern day, they're buying, uh, you know, British companies, <laughs> you know, the, 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 literally the periphery coming back to not colonize the core, but to actually begin to, 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 to move capital into it in that way and, and sort of take the profits home. Do you see this mirrored in your case, Peter? Yeah, it's very similar. I mean, Rome gets sucked into an, an expansionary cycle, which is basically about looting the Mediterranean. These great uh, triumphal parades that are organized back in the home city of Rome, they're just presenting all the works of art that they've stolen from whatever place has just recently been conquered, uh, such that the capacity to lead successful expansion then becomes a key to power in Rome. <laughs> and hence you get a kind of expansionary dynamic that goes beyond the gain line. So, you know, there were severe arguments about whether conquering Britain was actually worth it in the middle of the first century AD, that the cost of garrisoning it would, was not paid for by the tax revenues that came there at that moment. But then the equivalent to the story that John was beginning to outline is that provincial elites in these newly conquered territories, even in Britain, particularly in Gaul and Spain and everywhere else where the level of economic development and wealth was not, say, the same as in Egypt or Asia Minor, all those ancient places of Mediterranean civilization which were seriously worth looting at the time they were taken. But you get a, a, a pattern of provincial development in those areas which then sees local landowners become Roman in culture and in political rights on the back of the process of a, an economic expansion that takes place within those provinces. That was not part of the original imperial design. That's not why the conquest happened. But the conquest sets up incentives and drivers within an imperial system that local populations respond to in highly creative ways. And hence, we get this uh, astonishing increase in total wealth across the, the Roman imperial period. Mm, and following that astonishing increase, what do you see as a hallmark of a empire at its very peak? How are you defining peak success here? 
I, I think we're looking uh, at maximum economic domination of the region within which it operates. We start the book with the year 2000 on the modern side of things, where the Western domination of global GDP was 80%, 80% of all the value of goods and services produced in the entire planet was being consumed in the West. And that is a truly astonishing figure. And we parallel that with about 400 AD because the most astonishing fact that's emerged from the last sort of 50 years of work on the Roman Empire is that the old Gibbonian model of decline and fall, that everything was great in the second century, then got progressively tattier until a couple of barbarians came in and blew the house down in the fifth century, that has been overturned. We now know that across the vast majority of this extraordinary imperial state which runs from Hadrian's War to the Euphrates, the period of maximum prosperity is actually the 4th century, immediately on the eve of 5th century unravelling. You can't go with the Gibbon model uh, anymore. It simply won't work. So, uh, And certainly, as it were, Roman imperial GDP must be at its absolute maximum in the 4th century throughout the entire Roman period. That's what we're looking at. We're focused, I think, on big economic structures. We see the political relationships as being, with a slight time delay, being closely related to those economic structures. So that's our central perspective. Is that fair, John? Yeah, and I would say, I think that's one of the examples, Ellie, of this kind of, the deep currents that recur throughout the history of empires. And we propose this idea of an imperial life cycle. There's always this outward radiation of the epicenter, the economic epicenter. And the mistake, Peter has argued, is that uh, the historians who sort of focus on what is happening in Rome proper, and they say, well, there's a clearly a long period of decline from the second century, and they were so fixated on the center of empire, they were missing what was happening further out. And as Peter points out, and is established, I think, sort of beyond any uh, doubt now, that uh, it, it's really in the provinces where the big action is happening at the time of the fall, and so gross imperial product is at its peak at that time. And with the same logic I just mentioned a little while ago, you know, we would be, we would have to say, well, you know, look at what's happening in Italy to understand the future of capitalism, when in fact it's been radiating outward constantly. You know, it went out to the periphery of Europe, uh, to the very periphery in Britain, the, the centre, and then to even further afield into North America. And now we're saying it's moving even further. The decline today is a relative decline, and it doesn't have to lead to a fall. In the Roman case, there really was no choice. As Peter has established, it was a steady-state economy. If you wanted to get rich, somebody else had to get poor. That doesn't have to be the case today, which is why in the latter stages of the book, we look at what's going on in Western societies and the political discourse, and we say, make the wrong choices, and there could be fall. And in fact, I would make a case that Britain is living example of the bad choices that are made. And we have actually seen not just relative, but absolute decline as a result of that. And that's all based on an attempt to restore the greatness of, if not of empire itself, of, of, of a past in which there was an empire. And we're suggesting that different choices need to be made. There doesn't have to be a fall, but there could be. I, I want to return to this this question of the future of the West in a bit. So let's kind of move on now to decline and fall, as you say. What were some of the the challenges, the huge challenges in sustaining imperial dominance for both these cases? In the Roman case, what happens is that you get a build-up of wealth close to but beyond the Roman formal frontier. 
And on the basis of that wealth, much of it generated by a different range of relationships with the Roman Empire, everything from taxing trade that's going across the frontier to receipt of diplomatic payments to raiding. The same people are making diplomatic agreements one year and raiding the next, or even the same year, actually. (laughs) These are semi-subdued frontier clients who play it to the max. On the basis of that wealth, you get the emergence of stronger local dynasts who build up their power in military terms, often using Roman military technology. And you see a slow shift on the frontier such that larger and more coherent political structures, their confederations of one kind or another, emerge on Rome's frontier. And Rome can't dominate them so easily. It's having to make deals with them which acknowledge some of their rights in certain ways by the 4th century, even at the period of its own maximum prosperity, uh, the kind of deals that it didn't have to do in the 1st and 2nd centuries. Uh, We also see the rise of a superpower rival in the Roman case with the rise of Persia in the 3rd and 4th centuries, and that too is a response to very aggressive Roman expansion. Myself, I would argue that Persia is a kind of product of the Roman imperial system. So this combination of superpower rival in the sort of eastern front and then across Europe, the European frontiers, the Rhine and Danube, you get these larger barbarian, for want of a better word, confederations. Uh, Those change the strategic balance of power and Rome is not able, in fact, to confront and defeat them anymore. That's how I see the sort of economic and then political transformation working in the Roman case. So... If, if you put it in economic terms, Ellie, you know, we sort of talk about two factors of production. On the one hand, you have capital. On the other hand, you have labor. And we say they find each other somehow. In the Roman case, the capital was land, as Peter said. It's essentially farm production. And so the labor has to go in and actually take the land. And so you do get this sort of buildup of population. And more importantly, perhaps Peter might say, the buildup of population on the periphery is the organization of population into coherent units and coherent armies. In the modern period, of course, the principal form of capital is no longer land. You know, agriculture is a very small share of global GDP, its industry. But you do get that kind of population movement towards the core, but it doesn't go into the core because it doesn't need to go into the core. There's a massive population movement, bigger than any human migration in history, which takes place over the last couple of generations. And it's people in developing countries moving from the farms towards the big coastal and riverine cities that are linked into the global trade, where they build up these what amount to huge, I mean, absolutely massive labor reserves. And so suddenly what you have is pools of labor that uh, are available to industrialists, whether they are firms from that country or whether it is increasingly as it begins to happen in the late 20th century, Western firms which begin outsourcing production because they can produce so much more cheaply. Whereas in antiquity, you know, the, the labor goes to where the capital is. In the modern period, it's actually the capital going to where the labor is. Capital is now mobile. And in fact, in an earlier iteration of the book, Peter and I had a subheading called Attila the Banker. Well, you know, you don't, you don't need barbarians to invade. It, the, the capital is actually being moved offshore. But this is an inevitable process because the attempt to try and keep it all at home means that you have uncompetitive firms that can't export anymore. So there is this push in order to sort of, you know, capital finding what is relatively inexpensive labor, massive buildup, you know, over a billion people moving in a short period of time and filling these cities and creating the huge 
industrial force that, for example, China has been able to take advantage of to put itself back at the center of the world economy, what has always been its historical place, what it lost after 1800, and it's now gained back. And India is now sort of in the same stage as that process. But we're seeing that right across the developing world, and we will continue to see that. The actual movement of population has slowed down, but the the pools of labor are there. And, and in some places, particularly in Africa, that process is still in its early stages. So we will continue to see that dynamic unfolding. I think this is one of the most exciting things in the book, that you know the modern migration discussion is just missing the big migration story, which is actually in the developing world. And as John says, this is not nearly at its end. And in particular, he'll remind me, I've forgotten, how many of the world's fastest growing economies are in Africa currently? Well, yeah, I don't have this year's data, but a couple of years ago, it was seven, seven of ten. 10 you, know. you know, So there's a lot of dynamism, and even the, a continent that we still sort of have fixated as on. This is a story that's just not discussed in the West. Uh, you know, everyone's, oh my God, China, oh my God, India. But actually, we're nowhere near the end of this. It is still in its infancy in many ways, uh, and there's uh, a lot more to come, you know. John, what period do you see as the peak of Western dominance? And when do you see that decline begin to set in, in your model? Well, we've already reached past the peak, Ellie. In fact, I calculated, and I did this back in the very early stages of the book, I, I estimate 1999 was the year in which the Western world's share of global GDP reached its all-time peak. In fact, we begin the book to, you know, 399 and, and 1999 because of triumphal speeches that are given at that time. Bill Clinton's State of the Union address and then a speech Peter can tell you about that was given in Rome, both of them talking about how this will be the, the endless empire. In 1999, Bill Clinton was saying, it's incredible to think that they actually believed this at the time. I, I mean, I myself at the time said it was absolutely ludicrous, but they were saying America would have budget surpluses for eternity and they had to figure out what to do with all this extra money they were going to have. And of course, uh, somehow that narrative has changed. The turnaround comes very sharply and very suddenly. And this is as I said, because I was working in the periphery, I was looking at global capital flows and I could see something happening in the late 90s because all the American economists were saying, oh, this is because of the internet. There's a technology boom taking place. The economy is booming. The stock market soaring. But what I could see is that, in fact, because of the Asian crisis and because of the way the U.S. Treasury was able to micromanage the Asian crisis for reasons that are very specific. It meant that there was a massive flow, a massive flow of capital from developing countries, people in developing countries who had liquid assets, who were afraid their economies were collapsing, were parking them in the safety of U.S. Treasuries. And that meant there was a huge influx of capital, which sent that economy soaring. But I also could see in the late 90s, that was going to go into reverse. Stability would return, as it did return. And in 2000, we begin, and, and since then, the net direction of global capital flows, for the first time in history, but continually since, has been no longer from the periphery to the core, but from the core to the periphery. And we're going to continue to do that. You know, if you look at the rising, one of the things we touched on late in the book, the, the aging of Western societies and people living longer and longer lives. Well, how are you going to maintain these pensions flush with capital? The only option for big Western pension funds, and increasingly what they're doing, is having to invest their money offshore where the returns are high, and in effect, getting people in other countries to do the work to support these people in their dotage. And that will only continue. That particular dynamic is locked in. 
this idea of an endless empire that you spoke about there is really interesting because I know that historians and academics hate to talk about inevitabilities, but is decline always an inevitable factor of empires, do you think? I think at least a relative decline is. Or you might say a fundamental recalibration might be necessary. I mean, I've referred to it uh, as a kind of Newton's third law of empires, that the uh, functioning of an empire creates an opposite and equal reaction in the world around it, such that the empire cannot continue to function in the way that it did, the imperial system. I like to think of empires as systems rather than things. I think it helps to see them as uh, something with lots of moving parts. So when you change one thing, you're changing the other things. So over the long term, yes. But on the other hand, you could actually, especially in the modern world, where you're not struggling for the control of a fixed set of assets, which you were in the Roman case, you know, there's just the amount of productive agricultural land that there is, the central productive core of agricultural land, there's always going to be a contest for. In the modern world, that doesn't have to be that kind of contest. And one of the things we think about is, well, what can the modern West do? They're, you know, faced with the, the changing strategic situation, and particularly faced with the rise of China, it would be a very bad move to go into direct conflict with China. Cooperation with China is absolutely necessary for dealing with all kinds of problems from climate to population. All of these things uh, are really essential. But on the other hand, you've got a whole series of former colonial states that are now very economically powerful that share a lot of cultural heritage with the old Western imperial core. We focus on things like the rule of law, relatively free presses, elections that mean something, those kind of issues. If you stop waving Western colonial values around and actually start to court these new powers with a greater degree of equality and humility, then you could actually redefine, the. you might say, not the Western Empire, but the Western-derived or the non-authoritarian world, and you could create a different kind of block. If that system is to reinvent itself, it will have to incorporate those dynamic world economies that are willing to be incorporated into it, that are not ideologically opposed to it. And that will require changes of attitude. This is something that John is very strong on with his focus on the developing world. Yeah, I think the way I would answer that question, Ellie, is with a simple exercise. Let's prepare a list of every empire that has ever existed in history. And there's been an awful lot of them. Now, go through that list and say which one of those today is still a global economic epicenter. And the answer is not one. So I think that's the first thing to say. All empires have their day. And in the case of China, you know, although China called itself an empire prior to the, the revolutions, it wasn't an empire in the sense we think it. China is just a massive country, you know, in terms of population, always has been, as has India. That has always been historically the global epicenter. And the fact that it's moving back isn't because they are rising as empires, because in many ways, I think China has to, we, we need a different toolbox to study it. In some ways, it behaves imperialistically, but it has quite a different governance strategy to the empires we're looking at. As Peter and I say, I think what sets the modern case apart is that the West can continue to play an outsized role in world history 
if it forges a sort of common purpose and if it also, I mean, the, the term that I'm always banging on about, as you know, Peter alluded to, is humility. We need to be more humble in the way in Western countries we approach the developing world. The attempt to restore greatness, to make America great again, or to, to sort of create a global Britain, I mean, these are just nonsensical and they will only accelerate the decline in the worst cases, the fall. Whereas I think in the developing world today, there are many prospective allies, countries that are like the democratic traditions and have, have ad- adhered to them and kept a lot of liberal principles. And, and in many ways, and this is the, the point, very strong similarity between the Roman and the modern periods is culture is at the heart of it. There's a shared culture. It's not just language. It's, it's the way we educate people right across the world that the university has become the model of higher education everywhere. And that grew out of, you know, medieval Europe. And in so many ways, this culture has spread it's highly respected. What has been resented in developing countries is the notion that, well, but ultimately the privileges of power should always be reserved to the West. And I think that's what has to change. And change is coming slowly, but some countries are more advanced in that move than others. After using this this historical comparison model of the Roman Empire, what lessons do you think the modern West could take for it the strongest lesson that I see is that actually comes from one of the differences. That difference is, in fact, demographic patterns. This, to me, is one of the striking things that emerged from our work. We eventually realised that the demographic transition in the 19th century, which meant that all the children that people were having in Europe started to survive through better nutrition and inoculation, meant that the relative size of the European-derived element of the world population just rose colossally in the course of the 19th century. You know, as late as 1830, you've got death rates of about 50% amongst German children, which is by the 1900s, most of them are surviving. But there's a two-generation gap before people realise that all their children are surviving. (laughs) So we suddenly have Europeans breeding like rabbits and spreading right across the planet. So around 1900, Europeans are this astonishing 25% of the world population. And that is, you know, the the background for the emergence of America and Canada and New Zealand and, you know, all these so-called white dominions uh, and European, largely European-descended colonial populations across the planet. But that demographic transition, people eventually stopped having so many children. And the the sort of European size of the population has gone down to um, its more usual about 16%, 12 to 16%, I think is the, the right figure. It is only now Iceland and Israel in the developed world where the population is reproducing itself, where women are having this magical 2.1 children each in order to maintain population. That is everywhere else that is not happening so the indigenous population is aging and that means the ratio of people in work to people retired amongst indigenous populations is becoming unsustainable the further point from this is that that same demographic transition is happening in the developing world and this means that the whole kind of migration discourse that's around in the modern west is completely misplaced in fact, there will not be 
a supply of immigrants within about 20 years, not a ready supply of immigrants. And our populations are just going to get older and sicker, and the dependency ratios are going to get worse and worse. Uh, We will actually be queuing up to find immigrants within 20 years to maintain the operation and wealth of Western societies. And I see no sign of that actually being discussed in the kind of public discourses about migration in the West. So actually, this is the kind of big difference. I mean, not only does the Roman Empire have a fixed stock of assets, so people are competing over them, uh, you also get immigration is about, turns into a fight between immigrants and natives over control of those assets. In fact, the modern West is dependent on immigration to maintain its current degree of uh, wealth and any potential expansion, and it, that supply is going to reduce, and we are going to be uh, in desperate straits if we don't start thinking about uh, immigration in a different kind of way. I think I would add to that, Ellie. The reason I see 1999 is a really good, useful turning point between the West and the rest is because of an event that occurred, which was not a military defeat, but was a very important diplomatic defeat, which signaled this recalibration Peter talked about earlier, this change of balance between the developing world and the developed world. And it was at the World Trade Organization Summit in Seattle that Western countries had been in practice ever since they created the global trading system that we now know today after the war, had been in the practice, a handful of them get together, basically the G7 get together, hammer out an agreement, and then present it to all the other delegates for their approval. And in 1999, some of the big delegations coming from the developing world got together themselves in the meantime and said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're sick of this. We have our own demands. If we're not in the room, there will be no trade deal. And in fact, Seattle is remembered because of the street protests that ended up shutting down the city and forcing the declaration of a state of emergency. But the really significant thing is what happened in the conference hall. That was the year in which the delegates from the developing world said, from now on in trade negotiations, we have to be at the table. And that, I think, is the main lesson, you know, come back to this term, humility. There are going to be tremendous opportunities and there are prospective allies. And many of these countries, for example, that abstained in the vote, it's taken in Western countries sometimes as well, they're aligning with Russia. And it's not that simple. A lot of them are saying, particularly in Africa, for example, they said, well, you know, every time there's a war in Africa, we don't see you forming an international coalition to come. We'll deal with our own problems. Thank you very much. This is a European problem. You deal with it. It's not our, it's not our business. But if we showed more engagement in that way, rather than just prioritizing Ukraine, if we prioritize Sudan rather than treating it as an emergency, get the people out and then leave it to its own devices, which is probably the approach that will be taken, but rather say, we're all members of a global community here, literally a global community, because as Peter said, initially Europeans went throughout the world and they're still there. People like me are here in South Africa. And uh, today, immigrants are coming from the developing world and the developed world. And we're going to have to learn to live together and we're going to have to learn to have more respect for one another, not just at an individual level. But it's also respect internationally between states and not assuming we have to really begin to understand that whether or not we like it, developing countries are going to be equals at the table from now on. And for as long as we keep trying, you know, we we resist that, we're going to encounter these kinds of diplomatic defeats. That was Peter Heather and John Rapley speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Peter is Chair of Medieval History at King's College London, and John's a political economist at the University of Cambridge. 
and a senior fellow at the Johannesburg Institute for Advanced Studies. Why Empires Fall is out now, published by Alan Lane. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 